Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers pack some atomic power in our flagship season, Brave the Elements. On December 26, 2018 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers got into their element with stories inspired by the theme Gold. And now our featured storytellers, Jamie Hill, Louise Van Der Eyck, and Dean Steele. It's elemental. It's story time. Jamie Hill. So like most little girls, uh, I grew up playing with Barbie. And Barbie and Ken had a wedding on a regular basis at my house. Um, You know, brown matted carpet with all the Play-Doh scenes. That was kind of their aisle. Um, And they always got married, all the time. And the thing, unlike most little girls, they're planning their wedding for that like big, dream, gorgeous wedding. But as a kid, I had had enough of that. My mom was a wedding planner. We had done tons and tons of weddings. I went to them all the time when I was a kid, when I was a teen, when I was an early adult. And still, and still, you seen 27 dresses? <laughs> but for me, the wedding of Barbie and Ken was never about the wedding. It was actually about them being married. I knew that Barbie and Ken met, they had a wedding, therefore they were married. And that was the thing that I wanted. I wanted to be married from a very early age. I knew it's what you do, marriage and babies. Luckily for Barbie and Ken, they have Mattel to tell us that they get married, that they belong together. But for me, I didn't have that. Uh, and unfortunately, someone forgot to told me, thanks Ma, that there are some steps that come before the wedding. So I don't have Mattel, but I do have my friend Ryan. I have wanted to be married, like I said, forever. Um, and it's kind of one of those things that instinctually, I think a lot of us grow up and think, that's what you do. You get married, you have kids, you have a family, and then the cycle kind of repeats. It's a nice ring. Um, And so I was just, as a teenager, expecting that that gold ring would come in college. I set up my timeline. I'd go to college, go vandals. I would uh, get married at 24. I would have my first baby at 27. Then I turned 24. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, master's degree. And then married at 27 and kids at 30. And then I turned 30 and said, Um, And it seems like one of those things that's always plaguing me. I remember vividly the first time that I saw the complete works of William Shakespeare, abridged, here at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival in Boise. Amazing production, still one of my favorite plays of all time. And in that play, they close up on Ophelia, and they try and figure out who she is, um, where her character is coming from, how she has developed. And when they really get into her psyche, they break down the id and the ego and the superego, And really what part of Ophelia's brain is telling her is to just start screaming, cut the crap, Hamlet. My biological clock is ticking, and I want babies now. (laughs) And when I saw that in high school, it was the funniest thing that I had ever seen. And I went to school, and no way, you guys, there was this line, and they did this, and the the babies. And and then I, I went to college and saw the play again, and it was still pretty funny, and then I got to after college and saw the play again. It was a little less funny. And a couple years ago, my friend Dave, hey Dave, um, did the play at the Kenworthy in Moscow. And yeah, it's just really not that funny of a line anymore. (laughs) 
I mean, my whole body is telling me, cut the crap, Jamie, get married and have some babies. And I've got my Mormon family saying, you're 31, you're a spinster. And so what do I do? I keep trying to continue the cycle to get to that stinking gold ring. So I sign up for all the sites that you're supposed to sign up for. And I do all the things that you're supposed to do because in today's world, the idea of meeting some guy at a bar or at grocery store and just falling in love, that's, that's not gonna happen. Whole Foods cheese section, yes, it does happen. But other places, it, it really doesn't. And even um, working at a movie theater, you see a lot of single men at a movie theater waiting for their dates. <laughs> so I just keep doing the cycle. And, and uh, a couple years ago, my friend actually bought me six months of Match.com. Thank you, Christine. And they have a guarantee that says, six months, you find love. If you don't, we'll give you a refund. <laughs> I didn't find love. And I didn't get a refund. Because they said, oh, we'll just give you another six months. And then they deleted all of my account information and made me start over. So I got all of the same boys again and again and again. So picture it, Moscow, 2016. Did I do that right? Good. Uh, I'm sitting at the bar, and the bartender leans over and he says, if you want to go, I'll cover for and I was really tempted to take his advice because my date was in the bathroom and it really wasn't going well. <laughs> so the bartender just stares at me, yeah, yeah? And I said, no, Ryan, I'm okay, thanks. So my date comes back and he's just been rude all night long. And finally, he, he comes back from the bathroom and he snaps at Ryan, which if I wasn't already done, this is it. I work in customer service. Treating people well is important to me. You go tip that guy, because he's awesome. <laughs> it's really high on my list for people, not just my dates. So I'm already frustrated with him. He snaps his finger, he gets the bill for our two beers, and he pays my lovely friend Ryan, who really has become my wingman at Tapped. Um, he's the guy who watches out for me, he takes care of me, he offers to cover for me. He pays Ryan with a $100 bill for two beers. And of course, Ryan has to go get him some change. And my date instantly starts doing the, how long does it take to get change? Well, with a $100 bill and two beers, it takes a while. So he gets his change. And then the kicker, he leaves no tip. I'm done. I am so done. This guy who I had thought, let's try again. Here we go is clearly a giant jerk. So we walk outside and I try and do the, well, thank you for buying me a beer. I had a lovely evening. I hope you drive home safely. I'm parked around the corner. And he said, bye, and walks away the other way. And I took the opportunity to run back into the bar and thank Ryan for putting up with the rude date and for being my wingman, and I gave him a $20 tip. And then I hurried back into my car before the tears admittedly came to go home and get back on Tinder and start the cycle again. Thanks. Here to share her story of how she came to be playing the harp is Louise van der Eyck.
Good night, everybody. So my name is Louise, and you know me as the guest musician, but I'd like to share with you my story about how I became a harpist. And this truly is the gold in my life. It even has gold on it. And um, it really was the fulfillment of a lifelong childhood dream. So when we grew up in Northeast England, and when I say we, I'm talking about my twin sister and I. So there's an interesting phenomenon with my twin and I, because not only are we identical twins, we're also mirror twins, and it's quite rare. So mirror twins only happens in identical twins, and only 4% of identical twins are mirror twins. And it's this idea that genetically we're the same but opposite. For example, I'm left-handed, she's right-handed. We both have the exact same dental imprint but opposite. I had an impacted wisdom tooth in this side, she had hers on the other side. And even things like personality and characteristics. I'm more left-brained, she's more right-brained. She's very creative and artistic, and she's an amazing artist, and I kind of draw a stick figure to save my life. But then we also noticed that as we grew older, that it also seemed to be in all different areas of life, where the more that one of us had of something, the less the other one had. Or if one of us was successful in some way, the other one tended to struggle. And it really became to the point that it was quite predictable. So for example, in high school, she was one of the best athletes, and I struggled with asthma, so it's all I could do to keep up with one lap on the track. We also both had astigmatism in one eye, and then we went to the optician, and her astigmatism had cleared. Sure enough, I got it in both eyes. <laughs> when one of us would gain weight, the other one would lose weight, and it was just this bizarre thing. I could probably tell you exactly tonight how she's doing, just based on how I'm doing tonight. <laughs> So we grew up in northeast of England, and there really wasn't much money there, quite a rough area. And in, when we were about nine and fourth grade, the school didn't have much money, and they definitely didn't have enough money to cover musical instruments for the entire grade. In fact, they only had six instruments for the entire grade. And even at that age, I was in love with the harp, and I don't even know where it came from. It's just always been there. I remember watching symphony on TV and just picking out the harp and I'd hear harp and music and I'd pick it out straight away and I was just so in love with this instrument and I wanted to play it even at that age. Well, the school wasn't gonna waste six instruments on just random students. So everybody was given an aptitude test, a music aptitude test, and the top six were gonna be selected to play this musical instrument or to play a musical instrument. And my twin sister and I were both in those top six, so I guess there's some things that we're both good at. And I remember the six of us were all lined up in a room, and the first person was asked, what would you like to play? And she said, I'd like to play the cello. And then the next student was asked, well, what instrument would you like to play? And she says, I'd like to play the violin. And then my twin sister was asked, what instrument would you like to play? And she said, I'd like to play the violin. And then I was asked, what instrument would you like to play? And I remember thinking, oh, I want to play the harp. I really want to play the harp. And I looked up and I said, violin. Because I knew there wasn't any money for harps. And I knew they had violins, so I just took what was available to me. So my twin and I, we both got violin lessons growing up through the school. We ended up in youth symphony orchestras, too, and got exposed to a lot of symphony music and had a really good time. But then life goes on, and I ended up in a career um, pursuing mental health counseling, which is also really interesting because my twin sister struggled with some very significant mental health issues at that time as well. And then I moved over to America and met my husband here, 
and he was very supportive of my career, so I ended up pursuing counseling and became a licensed counselor. And then we moved to Idaho, where his family was, and we became more settled and stable and financially secure and things like that. And then we decided to take a trip to Salt Lake City, just a random weekend getaway. Now, I knew there were two big harp dealers in Salt Lake City. <laughs> and my husband also knew about this passion that I'd had my entire life with the harp. And so I said, hey, is it possible that we can just take a look at these harps when we're in Salt Lake? And he says, yeah, of course we can. So here I was in the harp dealer in playground heaven with all these harps and all medium-sized harps and there was one full-size concert grand harp. And I was just pl playing and having the time of my life when the person in the store, she said, well, we work with a financing company that deals just with musical instruments. Would you like to see if we can work out an offer? And we said, yeah, sure, why not? We weren't there to buy anything. We were just there to look around. Well, she came back with an offer, and it was actually very reasonable and very affordable, but of course it was also for the one full-size harp. So I was the one with my logic brain that said, well, wait a minute, isn't this a little bit extravagant? I mean, normally when you start to play the harp, you start on a medium size, and then you work your way up to the big harp. And my husband said, look, you've been wanting this your entire life, and if you're gonna do this, you're gonna go all the way. So you might as well go for the gold and go big because in the end, you're gonna get a medium size and you're gonna to have to upgrade anyway. And I said, you make an excellent argument. <laughs> and so, do you know, we drove home to Boise with a big full-size concert grand harp in the back of the car. And that's the harp that you see on stage tonight. <laughs> So let me introduce you to Daphne, that's her name. And you might think, oh, that's a pretty name, that's creative, not really, because the, the make of the harp is a Salvi, the model is um, Daphne. It's pretty much the equivalent of naming my Subaru Outback, Outback. <laughs> so I ended up in Boise and I found my harp teacher, Matthew, who plays in the Boise film. And I was a few weeks into lessons and then I said to him, you know, my goal with the harp is to play in a symphony, because I'd been exposed to all this music playing in youth symphonies. And I expected him to say, whoa, 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 slow down a bit, let's learn how to play first. And instead he said, well, I don't think the Meridian Symphony has a harpist. So ambitious me calls the Meridian Symphony and said, would you like a harpist in the symphony? And they said, uh, yes, of course we would like a harpist. The auditions are in August. Well, that gave me a few months to practice. So I wanted, to, I wanted to just play a pretty little folk song that I was practicing at the time. And my teacher said, no, if you're gonna audition for a symphony, you need to play symphony music. So he picked a piece for me that he figured that I would be able to manage. And I studied my butt off and I studied and I studied and I studied. And the audition came around in August and I got in. So. <laughs> Tom Phelps, who was the conductor of the Meridian Symphony at the time, he knew that he was taking a chance on me because he knew I hadn't been playing for long at all. And he said, you know, play what you can. But I also knew that whatever music was to come my way, I was gonna be able to manage it, even if it was just pure enthusiasm alone. So here I was in the symphony. So you know when you spend your whole life dreaming about something, wanting something, and thinking about what it would be like, you can actually make it bigger in your mind than what it is because you end up glorifying it. And then when you finally achieve that thing, it might actually be a little bit disappointing. 
Well, when I ended up in the symphony orchestra with the harp, it was everything I could have dreamed of and more. Because I even got exposed to things I didn't even think about. I also got to play in musical theater. I didn't even know that there was a place for harp in musical theater. And I was part of all these awesome shows. So as I was putting these fingers to good use, my twin sister got a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. And she had it really bad in her fingers. My mom told me that she called her and asked to be taken to the ER because she hadn't been able to move her fingers for a full day. And then rheumatoid arthritis progressed into Raynard's, which was even more crippling, and she still struggles with that today. So she really took one for the team there. In 2013, my grandma passed away. She lived in the Netherlands, and she was really the only other musician in the family. She grew up playing the piano, singing in choirs. And after she died, she left me a little bit of an inheritance. And I remember talking to my mom saying, what do I do with this money? And my mom said, whatever you decide to do with it, consider it a gift. It's your grandma's last gift to you. So I called the financing company for the harp and asked how much I had left to pay. And it just so happened that the inheritance was slightly more than what I owed on the harp. So I paid my harp off. And what my grandma did for me was she made this harp my own. And she also made it that nobody could take that away from me. So thank you, Oma, for that. So what about my twin sister now? Well, she's been stable with her mental health for a long time. I wonder what that says about me. <laughs> And she's also been in a loving relationship and a marriage, a happy marriage, with a guy who really truly is her best friend. Well, then what happened to my husband? Yeah, we've been divorced for a few years now. <laughs> You're welcome, sis. Now I took one for the team. <laughs> I spent the entire last summer up at Bogus Basin digging a big hole in the ground. They wanted snow making water. So I found myself on a crew with other men. We logged off all the trees and grubbed out all the brush. And then we dug and we dug. We blasted and we dug. Better than a 65 foot hole, deep hole in the ground trying to get a big enough holding pond for snowmaking water. Of all that digging, no one found any gold. <laughs> I was born right here in Boise on the north end. I guess that calls me a north ender. Uh, nestled in the foothills, you didn't have to look very hard to see the towering Schaefer Butte and Bogus Basin at its foot. Some of my earliest memories are riding with my father up to Bogus Basin to get firewood. He'd back his truck into a mountain bank and cut big log grounds and fill up his truck and haul him home. I was the youngest of a family of 12, had seven boys and five girls, and any given number of passers-by that needed a roof over their head or a hot meal. My mother and father never turned anyone away in need. So I was raised with the stories of Bogus Basin, clear back in the 1860s, how one Captain Morgan and his buddies decided to make some extra money 
and they would uh, mix a little fool's gold and sell, sell bogus gold claims. And they made quite a lot of money until they got caught. <laughs> but the name stuck, and thus you have Bogus Basin today. Our home nestled there in the foothills below, heated with an old coal furnace, but we never burned any coal. Uh, all we ever burned in it was that firewood that come from the mountain there. Oh, I can remember it so clearly, huddled over the vent with the blanket over my head to capture the heat. Oh, that felt good on a cold winter night, keeping warm by that vent. When I was just a little guy, you can imagine with that family of 12, it was a full house. Christmas time, oh, the presents were huge, a mountain of presents. Now I understand that Christmas is all about giving, but to a little guy, it's all about getting. <laughs> and I'd been through that whole pile, wanting to see what I'm gonna get. I'd shake them. Uh, I can't tell what's in this one. It's not for me. Mama, Mama, I don't find anything in this big pile for me. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna get anything for Christmas. Oh, stop whining, she'd say. Oh, you've got plenty of things coming for Christmas. I always wanted a snowmobile. <laughs> I, I, I never gotten, to this day, I've still not gotten a <laughs> snowmobile. <laughs> All I ever got was a slinky. You remember those little slinkies? Our home had three stairways in it, so you could have a lot of fun with a slinky until towards the end of Christmas Day when it got all tangled up and twisted or someone step on it. But for the short time you had it, slinkies are great. Uh, not as good as a snowmobile. I'd much rather have the snowmobile. This particular Christmas, oh my goodness, that huge pile shrunk, got smaller and smaller and shorter until there was just two or three left. And then I saw the tears welling up in my mother's eyes as she realized she really did forget her little boy on Christmas. I was heartbroken. I was so angry. I stormed out the house and I headed straight for the hills. I was running away from home, never to return. I was gonna live like a mountain man and live off the land at Bogus Basin. Never gonna return home. Can you imagine? I was so angry with my mother, my family, the world. There, I, I don't think I got too close to Bogus Basin, but in my, little, in my little guy's mind, I was headed that way and I was getting there. There in the holly of a gully, gully in the foothills, uh, heartbroken, I cried myself to sleep. I awoke, the sun was getting low in the western sky, and I was freezing cold, cold and freezing. And I thought, if I'm gonna be a mountain man, live off the land, I better find something to get warm. And, and I'm getting hungry too. I wonder if I could sneak back home <laughs> and find something to eat and maybe something to warm up with. So I headed back that way. I snuck in the house and no one seemed to be around. I, I got in there without anyone seeing me. There on my pillow, 
was a tear-stained note from my mother apologizing for forgetting her little boy. And a $20 bill. $20 was a lot for that day. Still heartbroke, I fell asleep again in the hollow of my pillow, feeling the warmth of that heat coming through the vent. You know, it wasn't much longer after that. A letter came home from school. Free skiing lessons through the Boise City Recreation Association. I always wanted to learn to ski. I'd been up there with my father getting firewood, and I saw the facilities there for skiing, but skiing was for rich people, and uh, nobody in our family skied. That was just a little bit high. Uh, how was that going to happen if you couldn't get a snowmobile? <laughs> Mama, can I learn to ski? And she looked at me, and she read through that. You really want to ski? Say, yeah, some of my friends skied. So my dad went down to the main auction, and that auction still exists today. He bought me a pair of old wood skis and cable bindings and lace-up boots. And boy, I was going to learn to ski. I got on the bus, and away I went. You know, I remember one of the times uh, the teacher would stand a little ways below the hill, and everybody would ski down the hill, and she'd, you know, bend your legs a certain way this way, snow plow to slow down, and stem Christy, they call it, for turning. Uh, with them old wood skis, the edges were kind of broke off. Uh, they used to have little metal edges on there, you know, to give you a sharp edge to cut with, but these were old skis, and, and the edges were gone. When it came my turn, <clears throat> I wouldn't go. I, my skis pointing straight down the hill, pushing with my poles, and I still couldn't go. And all those kids kind of looking at me, oh, what's wrong with you? Go. The teacher made her way up to me and said, oh, you've got the wrong wax on your skis. I learned something that day. With old wooden skis, you've got to have the right wax for the snow conditions, or the snow just packs up on his like two-by-four boards sitting in the snow. <laughs> she pulled out a block of wax from her pocket, and she knocked all that snow off my skis, and she waxed and waxed and waxed. Wow, did those skis take off. <laughs> I was skiing for gold. You know, the next Christmas, I still didn't get a snowmobile. I think I still got a slinky. <laughs> but there under that tree, I had a nice new yellow pair of Castinger boots and some shiny black head skis with Solomon bindings that lock in. I was skiing for gold. A lot of years have come and gone since then. Who would ever believe that I'd find myself employed at that glorious mountain? Nearly 20 years passed and gone uh, working for that organization. Great organization for this community. I'm still skiing for gold, but not so much skiing anymore. I spend my nights, I'll leave this meeting and go right up there and jump in my snowcat. I groom the slopes, getting ready to ski for gold the next day. Whether it be 
whether it be snow white gold that comes behind a snow cat when you get it just perfect as you can be for those gold skiers the next day, or whether it be the water that we make some nice white gold snow out of that pond, or if it's the heat coming out of that vent, uh, firewood that came from Bogus Basin, I found gold at Bogus Basin. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the gold show sponsor, Advocates for the West. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest is Louise Vanderijk. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. You can also donate by phone, text FLAGSHIP to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story. 